Thank you, Pastor Chris, for your leadership. What a great morning of worship. Uh, we do have a full day this morning. We have a baptism coming up, as we talked about. We have um, a members meeting. We have our children's uh, choir. They're going to be singing in just a few minutes. So uh, let's pray and uh, continue to worship as we look at God's Word together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that our debt has been paid fully. We thank you that uh, we can now come to you and worship you and praise you. You've given us the, the desire and the power for obedience. And Father, we pray that uh, you would be pleased with our worship. We pray, as the scriptures say, that you would inhabit the praises of your people, that you would make us aware of your presence this morning. And Father, we pray that you would encourage our souls in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, beautiful stuff this morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you would, to John uh, chapter 8. We've got a pretty long passage this morning, verses 31 through 59. Uh, as you, many of you know, we, as of December of last year, we, became, uh, we transitioned to an elder-led church, which means that um, there are eight elders. We operate in a plurality. We work together to, to shepherd and guide and protect and lead and teach uh, the congregation. And when we got together in January, I kind of laid out a three-year uh, three objectives for kind of what we, we hope the Lord would allow us to do over, over the next three years. And one of the, the first things on the list of our objectives was to develop a discipleship framework. And what I mean by that is, if, if what we're called to do, we believe we're called to make disciples who make disciples for God's glory and the joy of all peoples, then we have to figure out how are we going to do that? How are we going to make disciples? And what would you imagine was the very first question that had to be answered? What is a disciple? If we're called to make disciples, we have to figure out, okay, what is a disciple? What are we actually trying to make? What does a disciple look like? What does a disciple actually uh, do? Uh, the Greek word for disciple is methetis, which means learner or follower. Um, but a disciple, this word is much more dynamic than that. Um, it, it can't simply be satisfied with a one-word explanation. A disciple is, according to the Scripture, someone who follows after Jesus, someone who learns from Jesus, someone who loves Jesus, someone who, who obeys Jesus. And there's a long list of these things. Um, but there's one action, we might say, that, that distinguishes a true disciple from every sort of would-be follower every curious observer, every morally good person, and that is a disciple believes. A disciple believes. The fundamental difference between, again, a true disciple and, and, and just a sort of confessing disciple is that a real disciple believes. He or she believes in the identity of Jesus, the one God sent. Um, he believes in his own sinfulness and need of a rescuer. She believes that Jesus is God's Son who paid the penalty for her sin on the cross. And so this was the resounding message of Jesus, believe in me, believe in me. In fact, uh, 98 times in John's gospel alone, the verb believe is used. And in many of those instances, Jesus is commanding his audience to believe in him, believe in me. So this morning we, we come to this beautiful, beautiful section of scripture and we're going to see another dimension to this belief that Jesus talks about so often. So John uh, chapter 8, let me begin just by reading verses 31 through 33. The word of the Lord reads this way. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, 
If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So if you've been around uh, us uh, at Cap Show very long, you know we've been in this series of John, and, and Jesus is constantly coming across to religious leaders uh, who take issue with his teaching. They're frustrated by his grace, his, his gracious message. They're frustrated by the compassion. They're frustrated by just how inclusive he is, the, the types of people that he allows into his company. And so the religious leaders are coming along. They're constantly sort of combating him. And here he's in, embroiled in yet another lively, uh, we could say hostile uh, discussion. John tells us that Jesus is speaking to folks who have already believed in him. And he says to them, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple. Now, again, if there, if there are some things that really mark a true disciple uh, versus those who just pretend to be disciples, I want to know what those things are, don't you? I want to know what are the things that really mark the true disciple. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple. Now, that looks pretty straightforward, but it's actually not so simple. What does it mean to abide in Jesus' word? Does it simply mean to obey him? Well, throughout, the church, throughout church history, there have been two predominant interpretations of this word abide and this phrase, abide in my word. The so-called temporal, durative, horizontal interpretation and the spatial, domestic, vertical interpretation. You say, what in the world is this guy talking about? I thought I came to church, not a, uh, a home decorating show. Um, the, the, these words are, now there's a reason we're going to wade into this. So allow me to get technical for just a second because I think this is very important. Um, the first interpretation, the so-called temporal, durative, horizontal interpretation, it says the word abide means to continue in obedience. It interprets the word in, in abide to mean continue, persist, stay with. So what they're saying, Jesus is saying, is if you abide in my word, that is if you continue in obedience, you are truly my disciple. So that's, that's one uh, rendering. The second interpretation views the word abide in the way that a person would abide or, or live in his or her home. Abide then means to live in, to dwell in, to establish as one's foundation. In other words, Jesus would then be saying, if you make my word your home, if it is your resting place, if it is your true foundation, then you will be my disciple. Now, very good theologians you know, have come down on both sides of this. I actually prefer the second interpretation, and here's why. The passage begins with telling us, John tells us that, that there were folks who believed in him, and we're going to see in just a few verses that they actually want to kill him later. So they, they start out by believing him, and then they don't believe in him. And plus, this whole passage is about recognizing who Jesus is. That is, recognizing his true identity. And so I, I like... Uh, Matthew Henry's explanation, who says this, to abide means to dwell in Christ's word as a, month, as a man does at home, which is his center, his rest, his refuge. And you say, okay, what, I mean, what does it matter though? What's the difference? I mean, why, why is it important? Well, if we are truly to be Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, if we're going to remain in Jesus' word, 
it means that we put our trust in him. Our, our only foundation, he's our only foundation. It's what he, who he is and what he's done. I'm not minimizing obedience. I'm not saying that it doesn't matter if we obey. Of course it matters. It's, obedience is critically important. But I think what, what Jesus is saying here is that what it means to be his disciple is to continue to believe in who he is. Is to continue to accept and receive and rest in who he is and what he's done. See, there's a, one of the most amazing and paradoxical and mysterious realities of the Christian faith is this. And, and it's hard to get our minds around. I still, I've, been, I've been preaching this for 20 years. I still have a hard time with it. It's this. If we talk about and emphasize and prioritize who Jesus is and what he has done, it will necessarily lead to humble obedience motivated by love. But if we emphasize, prioritize, drive home repeatedly what we're supposed to be doing, if that's our primary focus, it will lead to frustration, arrogance, and disobedience. Again, it's a, it's a, it's a crazy thing. It's a paradoxical thing, but it's the reality that we see throughout the Scriptures. Now, of course, there's a place for telling people, thus says the Lord, right? Thus says the Lord, and expecting them to obey. At least those who who claim to be Christ followers. But Jesus seems to say the essence of true discipleship is continuing to believe in him, continuing to believe the truth, and the truth is the objective reality of who he is and what he's done. People sometimes say, I hear this all the time, well, I'm just going to tell you my truth. Or why don't you tell them your truth? That's nonsense. There's truth and there's not truth. So now, now I understand if someone means by that, you, why don't you give them your perspective of what happened? Okay, I can accept that. But the objective truth here is who Jesus is and what he has done. And that, he will say, actually ushers in tremendous freedom. Freedom from what? Three things this morning. We're going to see three uh, dimensions of this Christ-bought freedom. Look at verses 34 through 38. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Jesus tells the religious leaders that if they abide in his word, if they continue to believe in him, then they will find out that they're actually truly free. They'll demonstrate that they're truly free. And somewhat surprisingly, they say, what are you talking about? We've always been free, which is a bit ridiculous, actually, because at this point in redemptive history, the Jewish people have been tyrannized by just about every powerhouse nation along the way, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and even at this time, the time of this writing, they're under the tyranny of Rome. And so for them to say we've never been enslaved by anyone is absurd, but what they're saying is they're spiritually free because they are descendants of Abraham. They're saying, look, we've never been spiritually enslaved to anyone. Don't you understand our lineage? Don't you know where we came from? They were so puffed up with familial and ethnic pride that they actually fail to understand the one thing that Jesus says offers liberty. Now, here's the first aspect of this freedom, the first dimension that Jesus offers. 
It is the freedom from the bondage to sin. This is the first freedom, the first dimension that Jesus talks about. He says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. He uses the analogy of a slave and his master to make the point that that a slave obeys his master because the slave has no will of his own. No autonomy, no power. A slave is in bondage to his master. And for the unregenerate person, the person who's never put his or her faith in Christ, that person is actually under the bondage to sin. Sin is their master. They are morally, spiritually unable to resist sin. They can't resist sin because it is in their nature to sin. They're simply doing what is consistent with their nature. But for those of us who are in Christ, we have the power to resist sin because sin is no longer our master. Our master, I think maybe saying it better, our our loving and compassionate king is the Lord Jesus who lives within us. And so we have a new nature. I mean, will we still sin? Yes. Will we still fail? Absolutely. But at every moment, we have the all-powerful Savior living in us, and by His strength, we can resist that temptation to sin through the power of Christ within us. A pastor once asked me, he said, John, how do you get your people to obey God? It's not working for me. I found the question itself to be a little telling, um, but I said, well, how do you, you currently encourage your people? He said, well, I, I say to them on Sundays, what's wrong with you? Why are, this, is, this is literally what he said to me. What's wrong with you? Why aren't you obeying God? Why do you persist in your rebellion? I said to him, okay, that's, that's an approach. That's definitely an approach. But I said, let me be honest with you. What you've just said to me makes me want to do the worst thing possible. It really does. It makes me want to go out and disobey. It doesn't stir my heart to, toward obedience at all. There's only one thing in the scriptures that's said to possess the power to enable us to consistently obey, and that is Christ himself, who is revealed to us in the gospel, which is the good news of God's love for us, demonstrated in the advent and the obedience, in the, the, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ. And to the degree that Christ himself is manifested in us, we will be able to keep the law of Christ. And Christ is manifested in us as we regularly hear and apply the gospel. But because we regularly forget the gospel, what God has done for us in Christ, and instead we keep going back to what we need to do as that which is primarily important, because we forget the gospel, we then fail to obey Christ consistently And thus, Christians should be persistently brought back to the gospel. We have this ministry that we do here once a quarter called Pizza with the Pastors, which is uh, not the most clever name, I realize, but it fits. What we do is some new folks to our church, they, they come over to my house with the other pastors. We sit around in the living room and we just talk. It's very informal. It's very casual. And any question can be asked. And so we did this a couple of weeks ago. And we had some folks over to, to my house, and we're sitting in the living room, and someone asked one of the guys a question, um, how did you end up at Capshaw? What brought you to Capshaw? This is a guy who's only been around for a couple of weeks. And he kind of paused for a second, and he said, you know, I've had a really hard year. 
I mean, really hard year. Things I never expected to happen. He said, I just needed to go somewhere where I could hear some good news. And that was one of the best responses I've ever heard from anyone. I was so encouraged by that because everywhere we turn, we hear bad news. And so we non-Christians need good news. We as believers need good news. The church ought to be the place where when people come, they're not simply told about what they need to do but aren't, but they hear actually some good news. And when Jesus says in verse 35 of John 8, the slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever, he's saying all the benefits of sonship, all the advantages of being true children of God are a result of being set free. In this case, those who have been set free by Jesus, those again who have turned from their sin, put their faith in Jesus Christ, are made to be sons and daughters of God, with, again, with all the rights that go along with being a child, which means we're no longer slaves. We're no longer under this bondage of sin. We're no longer cast out. We're no longer strangers. It means that we've been brought into the very household of God. It means we are now heir to all the promises of God. So for those who have been brought in, those who have responded by faith, what they have done or even what they will do, will never be held against them again. They are free from the bondage to sin, free from the condemnation of sin. They are beloved by their master, the risen Christ, who now delights in them always. In Christ, we're free from the bondage of sin. And there's, it gets even better. Look at verses 39 through 47. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but of him who sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. And listen to this. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe it? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is you are not of God. Now one thing, something's terribly wrong here we see. And it just stands out. We've gone from the religious leaders believing in Jesus, verse 31, to hating him with a murderous hate, verse 40, with very little explanation as to why. Jesus does give us some indication, though. He says to the religious leaders, it is because you cannot bear my word that you cannot stand me. In other words, he's saying, you cannot stand my authority. You cannot stand to listen to me. And what it does is it gives indication that you actually are of your father, the devil. Now, that seems a little over the top, doesn't it? Your father... The devil, Jesus says, 
I was telling, uh, we have this class on Wednesday nights, Capshaw Academy, and I was telling the group on Wednesday that I've learned a lot of phrases from my teenagers. I have three teenagers, and so I'm learning some, I've learned a lot of new phrases over the years. Um, and uh, one of those is, uh, I've heard this a thousand times, and that is, uh, that's so extra. And what this means is, that's, I mean, that's, that's over the top. That's too, you're too excited about this. You're doing too much. I was in uh, a fast food restaurant not too long with one of my children. And uh, standing in line, there was a long line to, to get to the counter. And I had brought with me, as I often do, uh, a dark chocolate bar. I brought my own dessert with me. I wasn't going to buy dessert there. I brought my own dessert. Now, some of you have been around a while. You think, man, all this guy thinks about is ice cream and candy. I think about other things. But in this case, I had my, my, my dessert with me. I looked in front of me, and the guy who was right in front of me, I looked, and he had a bag of M&Ms with him. I thought, this is pretty cool. So I kind of leaned over and I said, hey, just like me, you brought your dessert. I felt something tugging my arm. I thought my arm was going to get just ripped out of the, the socket. And I said, I looked around at my daughter. I said, what? what? She goes, why did you do that? I said, what do you mean? What I do? She goes, why would you talk to him? I said, I don't know. He has his dessert. I have my dessert. She said, Dad, that's so extra. Like, you, don't, you don't need to do that. Well, I can imagine the disciples, these are, these are very religious people. And they say to them, Jesus says to them, your father is the devil. They're like, Jesus, that's so extra, man. Like, you don't have to say that. You can say they don't understand. You can say that they don't get it, but that's so extra. Like, why do you have to say that their father's the devil? It seems so over the top there. Well, Jesus is not just saying this about the religious Jews here. This is not Jesus being anti-Semitic. Jesus himself was a Jew. This is, the reality is, in one sense, every person alive is either a follower of Jesus or a follower of Satan. Every person. Either a child of God or a child of the devil. Jesus said elsewhere, and Bob Dylan sang about this later, he said, you you have to serve a master. You have to serve someone. Maybe the devil or maybe the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Now, again, this doesn't mean that every person who's outside of Christ is a devil worshiper. But it does mean that there's only one master to follow, and that is either the prince of the power of the air, the evil one, or the risen Lord. Every person who's outside of Christ is not sort of generally a good person, you know, just sort of a a good person who's but someone who is trapped in the kingdom of darkness over which the devil rules. But Jesus offers an escape, a transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. Here's a second freedom we enjoy in Christ. It's freedom from Satan's familial authority, from Satan as authority, as father, as family. The scriptures tell us that Satan is very real. He's he's a powerful enemy. But, you know, some people feel like they don't, they believe that Satan is omnipresent. He's omniscient. Satan is not everywhere, and he doesn't know everything. In fact, there are, what, 7.6 billion people in the world. So the the likelihood that you will actually run into Satan yourself or encounter him is very, very, very minuscule. But he does have his minions. He does have his demonic forces in the millions And they watch, they observe our habits, they see our inclinations, and they try to sabotage our spiritual walk. 
By the way, Satan's primary goal is not to get us to do bad things. Now, he delights in that. That's not his primary goal. He has another greater goal, and that is he wants to destroy us by deceiving us. The devil's intent is to persuade us by any means necessary that God is not all satisfying, that he's not good, that he can't be trusted. In fact, as we just read, Jesus calls him the father of lies. He tries to deceive by, true, by two primary tactics, despair and pride. These are his greatest weapons. He attempts to draw us away from God by despair. He accuses us of our sins. And what he wants to do is lead us to a place, as you've heard before, maybe you've felt before, he wants to lead us to a place where we say, you know, that's it. I can't do this. It's hopeless for me. I cannot do enough. I can never be loved by God. I give up. He is the great accuser. Revelation 12 says this, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our, of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. And listen to this. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan wants to dupe us into believing that God can never love us. That what we've done is beyond God's grace of forgiveness. That's actually one of his most effective strategies. It is deception, despair. Uh, New Testament scholar Stanley Gale writes, Satan draws our attention to our sin to drive us inward to despair in our guilt. God directs our attention to our sin to drive us to Christ, to delight in His grace. Our enemy's accusations are groundless in Christ. So I want to say to you this morning, if you are in Christ, the devil has nothing on you. There's nothing by which he can accuse you. There's nothing by which he can say to you, you'll never be loved by God. There's no need for you to feel ashamed or to walk around in endless guilt. You have been washed by Christ's blood. You have been cleansed and the devil now has nothing on you. He may try to deceive you into luring you into a place of guilt and despair. He may try to convince you that you'll never be loved, but this is a lie from hell. In Christ, God loves you deeply and completely. Now, the other tactic that he likes to use is pride. He tries to convince us that we're actually really good people. We look around, we see other people who fall into all kinds of terrible sins by our estimation, but we haven't. And the devil wants us to believe that we really don't need a Savior. Now, we know some people who do, but we don't really need a Savior. The question has been asked, how does Satan factor into our conflicts? Well, he stirs up conflict in our relationships by duping us into believing that we're always right, that the other person's always wrong, that we deserve to be vindicated, that this suffering we're going through, it's not fair. We shouldn't be experiencing this because we're good people. This is why James, we don't have time to look at it now, but would say that the way that we resist the devil is by humbling ourselves and returning to that faith deposit, which is the gospel. There are two very dangerous ditches here in summary as it relates to Satan that we can veer off into. And you'll see on the picture behind me, if you, one side of the vehicle is a steep cliff, the other side is a, a, they're going to fall off into the abyss. There, there are two ditches we can, fall, we can go into when it comes to Satan. One is to uh, obsess over him 
and to blame him for everything. Everything is the devil's fault. I had a lady who I was counseling maybe 15 years ago came into my office. She came into my office and I had a couch and, and two chairs like I do now. And she kind of bent down and looked under my couch. I thought, this is odd. You know, maybe she's looking for some spare change or some M&Ms or something. But she was kind of looking under my couch. And then, and then she ran her hands above the door frame. I thought, okay, this is, this is new. I've seen a lot. This is new. And then she said, I want to make sure that there's no, there are no demons in here. I want to cast out every demon in this room and make sure that the, that the devil and his minions aren't here. There, one, one ditch that we can easily veer into is to, is to believe that everywhere we look, there's a demon that's sort of persuading us or to blame for our, action, our actions. Now, the other ditch, of course, is to completely ignore the spiritual warfare that we're actually in and to actually ignore the, the real existence of the evil one. For those in Christ, we need not fear Satan. Not only have we been transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son, we've been made sons and daughters of the Most High. We have all the privileges and the rights and the joys and delights that go along with that status. Now look at the last part of this freedom. Look at verse, verses 48 through 52. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you, have, you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. So the religious leaders are losing here. They're losing in their argument. And what do they do? They do what we always do. We start losing. They result to an ad hominem. They start attacking Jesus and they say, oh, yeah, well, you have a demon. Oh, yeah, well, you're, you're a Samaritan. It's kind of like turning over the board game when you know you have no chance at winning. Now, some of, some of you have siblings who've done this to you. Uh, they know they can't win, so they just turn over the board with all its pieces. The, the religious leaders here know they have no chance of winning, and so they know it. And so they say, look, you have a demon. Jesus says, I don't have a demon. In fact, I don't seek my own glory, but I seek my Father's glory. And my father, Jesus says, will say in the section, he glorifies me. Now, there's a beautiful sort of Trinitarian dynamic here that we don't have time to get into. Um, but Jesus says, I know my father. My father knows me. You don't know my father because you don't know me. And Jesus also says, I know Abraham. They say, what are you talking about? You're barely, you're not even 50 years old. How could you possibly say you know Abraham. And then Jesus says in verse 58, in this sort of mic drop moment, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And this is all they can take. This is all they can stomach. This is a direct claim to be God himself. Jesus is saying, I am the great I am. I am God in the flesh. This is blasphemy in their eyes. So they throw stones at him. But he eludes them. What Jesus means, of course, is what they suspected he meant. That he is God in the flesh. The very God who created the world. The second person in the Trinity. The God of the universe. And as such, he has always existed. He says to those who would follow him, you can be with me forever. Anyone who keeps my word, he will never see death. 
It's not that this person will never die physically. We know this. Everyone that we've ever known has died physically. But that they will gain eternal life. And it's a life with, which this physical death cannot separate us from, cannot extinguish. Here's the final freedom we see in this passage. It is freedom from spiritual death. Those who are in Christ, they need not fear physical death because it is only the passage into everlasting life with our Savior and our King. One of my favorite people on the planet is um, an 82-year-old lady named Carol. And uh, she was actually part of the search team that actually brought me to California some 10 years ago or more. And I love this lady. She's so joyful and so warm and so kind. And uh, about two weeks ago, Janine and I had a chance to, to meet with Carol. Carol, her whole body is just riddled with cancer. I said to Carol, I said, I said how are you feeling? She goes, you know, I'm, I'm exhausted. I can, I can barely move from this chair to that one. I said, where, where is the cancer? She said, it's here, it's here, it's, it just, it's in her whole body. And she knows that her time on earth is very limited. But even so, she was just a delight to, to be around. And I said, how are you doing spiritually? I mean, what, how do you sense the Lord's presence at, at this time? And she said, the Lord's been so good to me, so good to me. This is a lady who has very little time left to live. Then she got this sort of mischievous grin. And she said, I don't tell my kid the, kids this, but she said, I'm really excited. I'm so excited to see my Lord. I'm so excited to be with the one who bought me. She said, I don't want my kids, to, I don't want them to think this is morbid or whatever. But she said, I, I, I'm so, I can't wait to see this God who redeemed me. The greatest threat to a perishing world is death. If you listen closely to celebrities and professional athletes and Anybody who, according to the world standard, has made something of themselves, you know they have one overarching fear, and that's dying. They're afraid of death. But for the believer, we need not fear death. We're free from spiritual death. In other words, we will be with our Lord forever. In fact, the Apostle Paul says triumphantly in 1 Corinthians 15, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're in Christ, you don't have to worry about death. You're free from death. You're free from the spiritual bondage to sin. You're free from the authority of the devil. And let me close with this. When I was a teenager, I had... Uh, I would go to school and come home and do my paper out, and my mom didn't go, get home till late, so I, had, I would usually watch movies. There were two movies that were on my loop all the time. I watched all the time, hundreds of times, my sister as well. One was Top Gun, naturally. Of course, you understand that every teenage boy, right? But the other one was, was called uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Now, I, I've seen that movie over 100 times for sure. Now, let me just say this. If I, the version that I've seen was recorded from TBS. It was recorded from TV by a VCR. So I'm sure there's some bad stuff in there. I saw the version that aired on TV. I saw that over and over. And if you haven't seen the movie, the, the, the main character is a guy by the name of Randall P. McMurphy. He's played by Jack Nicholson. And um, he was in prison, and he sort of uh, feigned. Uh, that he, he acted like he was uh, mentally ill, so they put him in this, uh, this mental ill, this hospital. It was uh, on lockdown. And, you know, he's this vibrant, vivacious, just sort of crazy, hilarious person. It's actually a, it's a phenomenal study on sort of law gospel, which I'll have to get into some other time. But 
It's this beautiful study. And, but, but anyway, so Randall P. McMurphy, is, he's trying so badly to get out. He wants to get out of this place. He can't stand it. He's trapped, and he's a bit of a free spirit. And so he befriends this guy, this 6'9 Native American, who's known in the mental hospital as the chief. And the chief, everybody believes the chief is uh, deaf and mute, that he can't hear or speak. Um, but Randall P. develops this friendship with him, and pretty soon they're talking. And there's a great scene where he gives him, I don't know, I hadn't planned on saying this, but it's, it's all coming back to me now. Uh, there's a scene where Randall P. McMurphy gives uh, the chief a, a, a piece of juicy fruit. And everybody to that point thinks that he can't speak. And he goes, ah, juicy fruit. And he says, what, are you kidding me? I didn't know you could talk. Anyway, um, I'm sorry, let me get back to point here. Uh, but, they're, but they're talking about how they can escape. And, uh, and, and Randall P. McMurphy thinks he has a way that, to get out of this place. There's a big, what looks like an island in this kitchen area. I don't know, it's got to weigh, four, I don't know, 400 pounds, this big sort of kitchen island. And uh, Randall McMurphy says, I'm going to take this island, I'm going to rip it out of the ground, I'm going to throw it right through this chain link window. He goes over and over, he tries, he can't do it, it's too heavy, he can't even budge it. Well, because he's made such a, a mess and because he rebels so often, they take Randall P. McMurphy in and they give him this uh, electroconvulsion therapy. Basically, they fry his brain, he's gone, he's just a vegetable. And so the chief then mourns uh, this loss of his good friend. They've developed this great friendship. And then in this amazing scene at the end, the chief goes and he he's six nines, this huge guy. He wraps his arm around this island and he struggles and strains and he rips it up from the tile and the cement and he throws it through the, the chain link window and he hops over and he walks out. And that's when the credits roll. That's when the, they cue the music. But there is, for the first time in the movie, there's a sense of hope and optimism. There's a sense of, of uh, courage. There is this, this reality of expectation, the hope of joy, all of these things. These are all the benefits of freedom. After being incarcerated, after being enslaved for all those years, he now there's a sense, there's a, there's a purpose, there's a joy, there's a delight in life, and you can see it all just... As the credits roll, well, if you are in Christ this morning, you can live with hope. You don't have to be overwhelmed with guilt and shame. You can live with optimism. You can live with great expectation. You belong to God. You are free from the bondage to sin. You are free from Satan's authority over you. And you are now free from the fear of death. If you're not in Christ this morning, you're enslaved. You may say, I feel like I'm free, but you're not. You're enslaved to the bondage to sin. I'm saying if you're not in Christ, I didn't say if, you're, if you don't go to church. I didn't say if you're not a good person. I said if you're not in Christ, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, you are a slave to sin. You're going to do what your nature desires, and that is to rebel against God. You're also enslaved to your father, the devil. And you ought to live with fear of death. But the good news is, you don't have to remain enslaved for not a second longer. You can put your faith in Jesus. You can turn from your own sin, your own rebellion, cry out to the Son of God, trust in His work on the cross. And the Bible, and Jesus says, you'll know the truth, which is the person and work of Jesus, and the truth will finally set you free. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you this morning for your mercy, your grace, your power.
And we ask, Lord, that you would give us the grace. Give us the ability by your spirit to rest totally in you, to trust in your son. If there's someone here who's, who's here, maybe by the invitation of a friend, maybe someone who's not usually here but comes every so often, maybe someone who's never been before, but they're here and they're saying, and, and, and you're working on them through your spirit. Father, will you bring them to a place of repentance? Will you bring them to a place where they're able and eager and quick to trust in the work of your Son, the only one who offers real freedom? Cause it to be so, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.